the scripture reading from First Timothy chapter 4, starting in verse 11. It says, Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourselves to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of the elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things, immerse yourself in them, so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on your teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so, you'll save both yourself and your hearers. Y'all can have a seat. This has been such a great week, and I'm so glad that you've been uh, coming out here during the night and in the morning. Great time of prayer and worship and testimonies. Brady, good job. That was awesome, bro. Yeah, Thanks for sharing, awesome. man. Seriously. Our speaker tonight is Andy Hudson, and Brady pretty much introduced him, but that won't, I won't say some more. Uh, Andy's a great guy, as many of you know, and you can introduce him as well. He has a heart for the Lord, heart for worship, and I, I, I work with him just about every day, and, it's, and he's really makes me uncomfortable sometimes. Um, <laughs> that's all right. I need it. I need to loosen up a little bit. Thank you, Andy. So... I really appreciate him and his, his friendship and just his character. And, and, and he, he has, uh, you know, think about the Old Testament prophets. They, they come in a line of speaking hard truths to God's people. And so he's going to bring a little bit of that tonight. So just know what's coming at you. And that's the way God's gifted him. And it's very encouraging. We need that in the body. So, Andy, come here and bring the word, bro. Oh, man. What's up, guys? <laughs> Hey, everybody. So good to be here without... Although Pat's and my guitars both made it on stage tonight, so that was exciting. Um, neither one of us did, though. Um, <laughs> Y'all, I'm tired. It's been a crazy week. It's been great, though, right? It's been beautiful. I, Brady, I just, dude, I just love you. I just love you so much. Um, so, yeah, I love all of you. Um, just uh, want to take a second and thank you for uh, the last eight months. It's been a crazy transition, and you guys knew that, and I knew that, but... Uh, you've been supportive in a way that I couldn't have imagined. So I just, I love you so much. Um, I'll try to keep it together. But I just, I'm so thankful for this church and for Jason and John and all the leadership. And I just, I really, I love this place. I've loved it from the first moment I set foot in MIC. I never saw the basement, though, so maybe if I'd seen that, I wouldn't love it quite as much. <laughs> I'm just playing. I heard it was cool. <laughs> but I love you all. I love you all. And I hope that, uh, I hope that what I have to say tonight will be helpful. And I really enjoyed this morning. I thought Andrea... Davis and Norm just brought a beautiful one-two punch of holiness, and so I hope that this will be equally helpful to all of you. Um, and you know, this week means a lot to me. Uh, it's been a long time coming. We've been planning this thing for months. Jason sat me down in September and was like, we need revival, and I was like, I know, and John was like, I know, and Josh at the time was like, I know, and now Josh is gone, so he didn't get to be here, but we miss him. Um, but yeah, so we, we sort of, this has been a long time in the making. Um, we just started praying big prayers like, God, we want people to just be stirred up to good works and to holiness and to community and all the things uh, that you're seeing. And so uh, I just, I really have loved this week so far. It's been a long week. Um, I see you all bright and early. And there's a lot of people there, which has been just God's grace. Um, and then tonight, I mean, what a, what a blessing to be with the family. Um, and so, yeah, so this week's been really powerful. I love our theme. Um, our theme is head, heart hands and the flow is really perfect of those three things because any transformation will begin with an intellectual ascent, right? So it starts in our heads and then it moves down into our hearts. It sort of percolates. If you know anything about coffee, it like percolates down in your heart and then it sort of like spews out your hands, right? So it starts here and then it moves down to the heart and then it moves out into the streets. And I thought John said it really well yesterday. Revival comes from God through his people to bless the community for the glory of God. I think that's the perfect definition of revival. So John just hit it out of the park with that. And I think this theme is amazing, uh, but I just have to tell you that it makes me a little bit nervous. Because um, yeah, I've been at EBF, what, two and a half years now, almost three years maybe? I don't even know. Um, but I've been here a while, and uh, I really think that uh, this trio of ideas is powerful, but I have some reservations in our church body about this theme uh, because I think that for the average EBF attendee, the head is really good, right? We're like a whole community of people who preset their radios to NPR and we like shop at Whole Foods because we know what goes in that other stuff and we live like steps from one of the world's great research universities and most of you have PhDs, right? And the ones who don't could have PhDs. You're all brilliant, 
And it's like head is easy for us. So it shows up in our worship, right? We preach through books of the Bible. We're preaching through Proverbs. Who does that? I mean, it's hard. I did it one time, and it took me weeks to write that sermon. It's hard, right? But we're going through Proverbs for like 10 months or something, and then we're going to go through Romans for like, I don't know, 50 years or something. No, but a long time, a long time. And we do that, and, and it shows up in our small groups, right? There's this really like intellectual battle, right? People are just brilliant. I can't believe all of you. I meet new people, and it's like, oh, what do you have your PhD in? Oh, I went to MIT. Where do you? Oh, I was only at Harvard. I, you know, waitlisted at MIT. It's, it's crazy. You guys are amazing. And then like 50 of you play on the worship team. It's just unbelievable. It's unbelievable. But head is like a real strength for our church, you know? Like we're really good at that, and I love that. And if you've been here a while, you probably love that too. I mean, Jason's preaching is so organized, and it's so helpful. And then when, like, your kids are taking notes on their children's bulletin, it's, like, in subsections. They have, like, the little lowercase Roman numerals. Like, who are you? Go home. Oh, my gosh. I taught Gene's son clarinet lessons, and the dude was, like, almost as good as me. Three lessons in. No joke. That's crazy, people. Just crazy. So head is really good, I think. And I think that hands is pretty good, too. Like, we, we really care about that. Like, our ethos communities are supposed to target tribes. And so, you know, we reach out to the homeless. And we, you know, in our daily life, we buy coffee for the people we see on the street. We buy a streetwise. And we really care about sort of how we interact with the lost. And all of your campus ministries train you to share the gospel with dozens of people. I can't even imagine if I was in crew at Northwestern. It's unbelievable. It's just amazing. And I'm, I'm so proud of that. And so hands is, is pretty good, too. You know, we sent out three church planners in five years. Like, three of our best men are now gone, pastoring other people. We just shipped them out. And I, I just, I love that. Hands, hands is good for EBF, too. But I, I just worry that we need to find a better way to reach the heart. I just, I worry about that. As many of you know, I'm from Atlanta, Georgia, originally, down south. Um, and in Atlanta, where I'm from, my wife and I uh, did college there and then moved up here. So I could attend Northwestern. Um, and, and in Atlanta, um, I miss a lot of things. I miss the fly fishing in the mountains. And I miss, like, these beautiful trees everywhere, these really tall trees. And the highways are all so green, just surrounded. But if you've been to Atlanta, you know the thing I don't miss is the traffic. Can I get an amen? Anybody been there? It's so bad, y'all. I was in L.A. That's like a parking lot. But this is actually moving, but slowly. It's just terrible. And so what happens in Atlanta is Interstate 75 comes down from Detroit, and keeps going south. And Interstate 85 comes down from the Carolinas and keeps going south. And they, they meet in Atlanta. But instead of just crossing, they merge for a while. And so when they merge, it's like eight lanes of death traffic in each direction. Like 75 miles an hour, you're scared. Little shoulder, not anymore. Nope, give it to the buses, right? So nine <laughs> lanes in each direction. Just terrifying, just terrifying. And then, and then to, to add insult to injury, Interstate 20 cuts the city in half east to west. So you like have this whole section where it's just every, it's a mess. In fact, the, the big junction in Atlanta is called Spaghetti Junction. If you've been there, like they talk about it all the time. It's the weirdest thing. Um, and so it just, it's terrible to drive through the city because there's, you know, dozens and dozens of accidents every day. And it's just like you're stop and go and it's kind of hard and like people are late all the time and, there was this big white flight in Atlanta where all the rich white people moved out. Now they come back in to go to work, so it's just a terrible commute every day. It's just, it's just really bad. It's just really bad. Um, but there's another option now. So like, like 40 years ago or so, the city was like, you know, this is terrible. We need another highway. I was like, what? No. But they need another highway. So they built Interstate 285, and it looks like this. It's a circle, right? I don't know how it's an interstate, but it is. It's, I don't know. So it, it circles the city, right? It just circles the city. And all the highways hit it, right? Every highway. It's like has all these intersections. And so, so what you can do if you're driving through Atlanta is you can sort of, you're getting close. You're like 45 minutes away, and you're like dead stop. So you get on 285, and then you just go around the city, and then you get off. And you manage to dodge like the heart of the city. You just dodge it. You skipped all the hard part, and you took the easy road around. It's called the bypass. It's called the perimeter. And I just feel like we do that as a church, <laughs> I feel like we just bypass the heart. We sort of start at the head, and we go out the hands, but we never get here. Does that make sense? I feel like, I feel like we're just missing it a little bit. And we don't want to deal with the stop and go and the pain and the slow go and the, the accidents and the heartache, and we're late, and it, it's suffering. You know, like It's hard to go through the middle, the heart of the city, but, but I think that we've dodged it for too long. So I feel like we as a church, and I'm talking about myself here too, I'm, I'm mostly preaching to me. 
is that we use our intellectual arrogance and our, our social justice initiatives to, to justify a brazen disregard for holiness. And I just, that's just what I see. Um, and I love you, and I hope you know that. But that's just what I see in my own life, and I see it in a lot of your lives too. But that's not what God intends for us. Right? 1 Peter 1.16 says, We are called to be holy as God is holy. We're called to be holy as God is holy. And we can't make exceptions anymore when it comes to personal holiness. We just, we just can't. There's no excuse, hear me, no excuse to disregard personal holiness any longer. There's no excuse to be lackadaisical, to be slack, to not pursue it. There's no excuse. And unless we deal individually with our lack of holiness, we're going to stand in the way of the revival that is begging to break out in this city. And we're going to be the reason. It's going to be us because we refuse to do the heart surgery required to pursue holiness. So that's my big idea for the night. We need holiness, right? You can, yeah, write it down. That's, I, if you take notes, you're not going to like this sermon. I'm sorry. But whatever. If your kids do, it'll be all impressive. Um, so let's just pray. Let's ask God to help us. And then we're going to look at a passage of scripture that was written to a man who's not so different than us about pursuing and protecting holiness. Let's pray. God, I ask that you would continue to bring revival, Father. I ask that all these things we're doing, Lord, would not be in, in pride to think that we are creating revival, God, but that you would bring revival, that you would send your spirit among us. God, I pray that that spirit would help us and help me tonight to say only the right things, God, to be loving, God, to care for these people that I love so very deeply. So, Lord, help us tonight to hear from your word. In Christ's name, amen. But fortunately for all of you, I am actually an expert on holiness. So I just want to tell you, yeah, I'm, I'm a pro. I'm, so let me tell you why I'm a pro. When I was an undergrad, a freshman, I got in with this group of guys, the same group of guys that eventually mentored Brady, uh, just this amazing awakening of guys. Um, and they had this amazing idea. It was called the sin jar, all right? So check, you're not even ready. This is, like, I think we need to implement this in our ethos communities. Check, hear me out. What happens is when you sin, you pay for it. So you bust out your wallet and you pay for it. No, no, a buck is child's play, bro. This was like, I'm talking, I'm talking Andrew Jackson in the sin jar, right? So what would happen is like, like you guys get together for coffee and it's like, how's it going, man? You always saw it. They look down. It's like, how's it going? Pretty good. Boom. What'd you do, right? Usually it's like they're looking at porn. They yelled at somebody. They talked that cheated on a test, whatever, right? They do something and they pay for it. Boom, in the sin jar. So the goal is, if you love money enough, you won't sin, right? It's like the, the theology is so robust in this. You have to understand, right? <laughs> but, you have to, so, so, but bear with me. So the sin jar did not have a good effect. So we decided we needed to, to do more. So we added to the sin jar um, the, I don't maybe victory laps? I don't know what we call them. And so when you sinned, um, in your state of brokenness, you would take your money to the jar of salvation, and then you would take a lap, like legit, a lap. So our apartments in this building were a big circle, and you just you run a lap because you sinned, and you paid for it. And so then it was like, I love money enough not to sin, and I love comfort enough not to sin, right? It was this amazing combination, just fantastic. So the sin jar, money in the jar, like you don't want to talk to that guy. That's going to get awkward. Like it doesn't really matter what you do. I struggled. Oh, you struggled. I'm so sorry. Nobody knows anything about anything. Anyway. But I, I, I think we should implement this. Maybe John can write that down for later. I think this is the future of our ethos community model, probably. Um, no, I'm just playing with you guys. That actually did happen, though. But <laughs> I'm playing when I say I'm an expert on holiness, because if you know me at all, you know that this sermon is hard for me to preach. Um, I have, for a lot of my life, just been a rebellious, um, wicked guy. And, I, you know, the sin jar worked for me, because it, sort of, it sort of patched the leak. You know, I felt like I had made that progress... Um, but this sermon is really for me. Um, and I, I just want you to know that. It's probably for some of you too, but it's really for me. And I think that when God um, you, lets a people hear a sermon, the sermon is for them, but then preparing the sermon really prepares the preacher. So if, if anything I say sounds harsh, no, it sounded harsher to me first because it's just, it's just really hard for me to do this because I, I just have a really wicked history um, and I, I feel just totally empty. Like hearing Brady's testimony, I just I can't imagine having that kind of goal for holiness. I just i am so inspired by that. Um, but I, I think we need this. I think we do. So I'm just going to share with you my heart. Um, and in different seasons of church history, uh, different parts of the Christian life kind of come under fire. You may have noticed this. So there's, there's a season where 
maybe um, the Trinity is being questioned, right? So it's like all this literature comes out, and everyone says, ah, is the Trinity really real? And then it sort of goes away. And then there's a season where it's like, oh, the Bible's not the Word of God, and that kind of goes away. And our culture has all sorts of different ones, you know, like we have to sort of kick this part out of the Bible because that's not fun, and this part's not really cool. Um, but I think a consistent thread in my generation has been that we just let holiness go. We just, you know, like, we sort of, like, we go to youth camp, and they're like, man, you get saved, and then that's it. Like, we sort of never take another step forward. And I think that it's certainly good to avoid a legalism, but it can be dangerous to not pursue holiness. I think that if you're not pursuing holiness, you're drifting into something else. If you're not pursuing holiness, you're drifting into something else. Um, and holiness is sort of this weird word where it, I don't know what it means. Like, I don't even know if you know what it means. Um, but there are several good definitions I'm going to share with you. Uh, these come from three of my favorite theologians. So you, maybe you've heard of these people. I don't know. Um, one of them uh, came this morning from Andrea Davis, the famed theologian. And um, she says that holiness is being set apart. Holiness is being set apart. You've probably heard that before, like in Sunday school, like on your flannel graph, set apart. There it is. And that's true. That's a fantastic definition because God is set apart from creation, and then he created us as a people set apart, and now he's setting us apart again through the work of Jesus. So that's a fantastic definition. So that's one, right? We've been set apart. Another, another fantastic theologian, Norm Blair, spoke this morning um, of how holiness involves getting on board with God's plan, not only for the renovation of your life, but for the recreation of your life. And I'm paraphrasing, but it was fantastic. The idea that God has plans for us, that he's making us new, that he's renovating us, and then he's going to add these new things to us that we can't even imagine. There's this whole addition to us. Um, and so I reached out to one more um, theologian that I like. His name is Brian McLean. And, uh, and he actually texted this to me out of the blue, and so I just stole it. And I put it in my sermon, but here's the credit. Um, and he says, Holiness is the process in which God shares with his sons and daughters his moral attributes and makes them distinct from the world. Pretty good. I think those are good, right? Those are all really good. So eat your heart out, D.A. Carson. We've got a new school theologians up in EBF, all right? But <laughs> I can't believe the stuff I say. But seriously, I did find one scholarly definition that I really like of holiness. And this comes from Wayne Grudem, who I don't actually know, but I wish I did. He says that holiness for us is like progressive sanctification. And he defines that as a progressive work of God and man that makes us more and more free from sin and like Christ. So it's a progressive work of God and man that makes us more and more free from sin and more and more like Christ. I think that's fantastic. Because I think it hits on the hard truth of holiness, which is that God has begun a good work in us, and he's going to complete it. But there's this whole long stretch where we sort of got to do something, right? You can't just hang out. There's really a progression here towards holiness. And you'll even see that in the themes for our days of Prelude to Revival. So we started with the glory of God. We perceive the glory of God. And unless we've perceived the glory of God, the word of God, it doesn't mean anything to us without the glory of God. So if we don't understand that God is holy and he is glorious, then the word doesn't mean anything, but it does. So on Monday, we talked about the word of God. So we go to the word and we read about our glorious God, but we also go to the word and we discover that we were built to be in community because God has always been in community, right? So we go to the word we realize, oh, man, I have to be in community. But then you get into community, and what happens? People start seeing stuff, they start saying stuff, and you either check out or you get holy, right? If you've been in my ethos group, you know how this works, right? I say this all the time. I'm like, what does that mean? People are like, I struggled this week. What does that mean? I say that all the time. Because I think that community forces it out of us, right? It makes us holy. If you're married, marriage makes you holy, right? Can I get an amen from some married people? You think it's going to be like, never mind. I can't even say that out loud. Uh, <laughs> But there's this idea that God's will for us is holiness. God created us to be a holy people. He created us to be a holy people. And sometimes we rebel against that. But we know who we were made to be. So if you want to turn your Bibles to 1 Timothy 4, we're going to read verses 11 through 16, which Bradley just led. And I really appreciate you guys playing. It's so cool for me to be out there worshiping. That's, it's just fantastic. I just love that. It's just so beautiful. And I really appreciate all y'all musicians. Um, so... 1 Timothy 4, uh, verses 11 through 16. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech and conduct in love and faith and purity. Until I come, devote yourselves to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. 
Do not neglect the gift you have given to you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. All right? So in First and Second Timothy, Paul's writing to a buddy of his named Timothy. So Timothy is a young dude here. Um, and, and Paul is sort of like, Paul is like his mentor, and they're like friends, and they're like colleagues, and he calls Timothy his son in the faith, but also his brother in the faith. This is kind of like me and Brady. So that's kind of this relationship, like lateral, maybe used to be one way, kind of they've grown just to be laboring together, but Paul's still mentoring a little bit. Um, and so he writes these letters, Timothy, and it's just, it's just interesting, because in 1 Corinthians he calls him beloved and faithful. Like it's really deep, you know? It's just, it's a really beautiful relationship, a really gospel-soaked Friendship, and I'm sure a lot of you have relationships like this, and they're just they're just wonderful. Um, and it's important that Paul calls him beloved and faithful, because the context of First Timothy four is is not so good. Um, it's sort of like the first part of the chapter. It's like apostasy, which is like falling away from the faith, is is everywhere. It's running rampant, and false teachers are like preaching all over the place, and they're threatening the flock that Timothy's in charge of. And so Paul writes to Timothy, and this whole kind of letter, and it's implied too that maybe like. People don't respect Timothy. They're kind of like, you know, like going after his authority. Um, so Paul writes to him, and he, he gives him this nice letter. Um, two of them, another one comes later, but he sends him this really nice little letter, uh, kind of encouraging him to stay rooted in holiness. He's insisting that Timothy stay rooted in faithfulness and grounded in the gospel, even though people around him are falling away. He's like, Timothy, stay put. You're doing well. Like, stay put. And he's also telling him that he needs to pursue maturity, right? We see that, um, we see that in, in like verse, verse 12, and then we also see it in the book of Hebrews, chapter 5.12. Um, the author of Hebrews, I, th- I think this is a great verse. He says, Hebrews 5.12, For though by this time <laughs> you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of God's word, right? He says, you need milk, not solid food. This is like, this is like he's talking smack, right? He's like, He's like, you are a grown man, and you're like nursing on like baby food. I have a baby now, which is why the sermon was so much harder to write than other sermons. If you have a baby, I'm learning. Um, and so he like sat on my lap while I wrote that. Like, he just wouldn't. It was really cute. I like that. But it's kind of like, you're a grown man, but I'm like, I'm like, oh, Eli, let me have, I, I just need that. I just need a little hit of that. Um, right? But like, that's ridiculous. It's ridiculous, right? And so Hebrews looks at you, and like, I don't know who wrote Hebrews. Like, we don't know. And like, probably a good thing, because that guy must have been like, I mean, some people think they know, but I don't, I don't know. But this guy was crazy, right? He was intense. And Hebrews is like, grow up, you know? It's like you're like nursing a bottle. It's like you're at the NFL game, and you're like up in the top there, and your friends are all drinking Miller Lite, and you're like throwing back the baby bottle. Like, dude, this is so good. Like, I think this is imported. It's just ridiculous. It's just ridiculous because we're designed to be mature adults. We're designed to walk in holiness. Holiness is the, in, is the intended destination for humanity. See, God made us and put us in Eden, where we were holy, where there was no sin, there was no separation from God. We were in perfect fellowship with the Almighty, who'd already been in perfect fellowship with himself that we learned yesterday, and there we are. We're in perfect fellowship with God. And when God created us, he set us apart, which we talked about a little bit earlier if you're a Christian in here, holiness is your final destination. Like, not like the movies, like you're going to get there. Like you're going to be holy. You're going to be perfect one day. Not on this side of eternity, unfortunately. Unfortunately. But we are going to get there. And so we were, we were put in Eden, and we were holy, and then we chose to rebel, right? Our forefather and mother, Adam and Eve, chose to rebel against God, and you would have chosen that too, so don't think you wouldn't have. We all would have. And so now... We're all sinners by nature and choice, right? Not just nature, not just choice. Nature and choice, we're sinners. And so God immediately, and by immediately I mean before we even rebelled, had a rescue plan in mind, okay? And the plan's name was Jesus. And so Jesus was going to come later, but until then we had this sacrificial system, right, where blood kind of goes down and that atones for our sins and helps us be close to God. Um, And then there were priests who could mediate for us. And then when Jesus came, he was the high priest, right? He came and mediated for us an opportunity to connect with God. Jesus mediates that new connection with God. He replaces the sacrificial system so that we can be holy. Because God has revealed himself to us in creation. We see God. 
We hear it preached at EBF. We sing about it. We pray about it. God has revealed himself to us, and the only correct response is holiness. The only correct response to God's revelation is holiness. I mean, let's look at the Bible. Think about Isaiah 6. Think about what happens when he sees the Lord seated high on the throne and the train of his robe fills the temple and the seraphim are like, holy, holy. They can't even look at him. And Isaiah, what does he do? He falls over. He just like falls over. And he's like, I am, I'm unclean. I'm unclean. And then God begins the good work, right? We see the whole thing kind of played out in a little metaphor here where the coal is touched, you know. This thing is given from God to him, boom. And then he says, I'm going to go. Right? God's like, who's going to go for us, for the Trinity? Who's going to go? And Isaiah, because he's seen God's revelation, says, I have to go. Because God has begun this good work by touching this coal to my lips. And here I go. We see the whole thing in a little mini drama right there. Or think about Nehemiah, right? Like building a wall, right? Another brick in the wall. Anything Floyd fans? That's what Nehemiah is about. And so the wall gets built. And then in chapter 10, what do they do? They respond to God's faithfulness by consecrating themselves. And there's a pattern of this all throughout the Bible of God does something and we commit ourselves afresh. And that's what we need right now because God is doing something in our midst. And if we don't commit ourselves afresh, we're going to miss it. We're going to miss it. And holiness is a process. You know, it's, it's going to take time and it, it's not easy. It's not easy. Um, especially in this sort of wicked world. You know, we're sort of surrounded by all sorts of craziness, and like, I could be, you know, I could disqualify myself from ministry in 45 seconds right here on this thing, right? I mean, it's crazy. It's just amazing how depraved the world is, but there's no new sin under the sun. You know, it's just easier to get to in some ways, maybe. Maybe it's easier to hide, but there's nothing new. We still have to pursue holiness. So when Paul writes to Timothy, he wants him to be holy. Timothy's a young guy. He's like a lot of us. Like, we are a young church, I mean, like, summer, this place is not bumping, right? I mean, if you're here in the summer, it's like I sort of have a whole pew, and I can, like, stretch out, and I leave my guitar case on the front pew in the summers, which is really handy. I just do that. But, like, we, we you know, we're sort of crowded during the year, and then we sort of spread out in the summers because we're just young, you know? So, much, so many of us are doing internships, and we're traveling. You know, we have young kids, and so we're traveling to see family, or we're at some project in some middle-of-nowhere country doing something amazing. And, and... Paul wants that for Timothy. He wants him, a young guy like so many of us, he wants him to be holy. And so in verse 12, which is where we're going to spend a lot of our time, he says, Timothy, like you're young, bro. You're just young. Like you, you are, and I'm young, and a lot of you are young. He says, don't let that be a reason they look down on you. He says, don't use it as an excuse. He says, but set an example for the, for the believers, right, for the church. So we as young people... And I don't mean young like high school. I mean young like 95% of us in this room. We have to sort of decide that we're going to set an example. So verse 12 sounds like this. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. It's worth noting, like we said earlier, that holiness begins and ends with God, right? that we can never earn our holiness. So I'm not saying that we're going to do anything and we're going we're to sort of like earn our salvation or any of that, but I am saying that holiness is a synergistic process, that God has begun it, and we have to sort of labor in that. It's like if you've heard the scripture, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That's kind of what we're talking about, this sort of synergistic process where we have to commit to this or it's not going to happen. It's not just going to happen on its own because sin is too strong and we are too broken. We're too broken. So we're going to break down each of these five areas. And a lot of us are young, like I said, and so I, I really hope this will help us. But I, I just want to take a second. I really think that what Paul's getting at is not that young people need to be like old people, right? I don't think that's what he's saying. I think that what he's saying is age, regardless of what age you are, shouldn't be an excuse for you to ignore your holiness, so it's going to look different for those of us that are 25 versus those of us that are 65. If you've been married five years or 35, it's going to be different. But I think that what Paul's really getting at is that age is not an excuse. It's not an excuse. It's just not. So I hope these will be helpful. We're going to kind of look at these as a diagnostic of our hearts, okay? We're going to look at speech, 
conduct, love, faith, and purity of increasing levels of shouting. Hopefully not too much. I'll try not to. I'm trying. Um, so I just want to work through these. And I think I, we're just going to look at a couple of things, and I, I hope that something will prick your heart. I hope so. Um, so when Paul says to Timothy, set an example for the believers with your speech. I was reminded of a scripture from Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians 4, verses 29 through 32, and it sounds like this. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice, in case we forgot that. Be kind to one another. Be tender-hearted forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Now, before we start going through these, just know I'm a recovering legalist, right? So I got saved in high school. I remember the morning that I knew my life had to change. I sort of thought I got saved real young, but I don't really think so. I sort of, maybe I did and I wanted I don't think so, though. I really think it was this morning. I was a freshman, and I woke up from a night of heavy drinking in my buddy's basement, and I was a year young. I was like 12. Like, you know, keep an eye on your kid. Like, I was that guy. Like, I was really duplicitous, right? It's amazing. And so I woke up from this night of heavy drinking, and I woke up, and I sort of like stumbled in the bathroom, and I looked in the mirror, and I was like, what is going on? Like, how did I get here? You know, how did this, this happen? And so then I got, I got saved, and all of a sudden it was like, man, alcohol is so evil. Like, I don't drink it, because I'm like 12. <laughs> and you shouldn't drink it, ever. Nobody. And so I made up, I had the most amazing rule book of things I had to do to please God, right? I sort of like swung too far the opposite direction. I really added to Jesus. But the answer is that Jesus plus nothing equals salvation. That doesn't mean that there's not obedience to be had. But I, was, I had this nice little list where I could check off the boxes and I was really holy. And it wasn't until I got mentored by some wise older men I realized, okay, there is a third way between sort of this legalism and this what's called antinomianism, which is like a, a everything goes kind of theology, right? And so there is a third way, and that it's walking in holiness. There's the way of holiness, and I think it's the only way. And so my pre-Christian life was sort of real crazy, and my, my legalist Christian life was sort of real rule-based. And, and before I was a Christian, corrupting talk was like my thing. I used, to, I used to get excited about how many times I could use the F word in a sentence in different parts of speech. I'm not even messing with you. I would like keep track of it. In my, like, like, that was like five different usages. It was unbelievable, right? And if you know me, like, I'm still a word guy. I'm fascinated by words. I love, like, Scrabble, but nobody will play with me. So if anyone wants to play Scrabble, I really need some opponents because I've alienated all my opponents. Probably because I'm not a great, I'm just, I'm not a great winner. I'm just not. And I'm really not a great loser. I can't help, you know. I need holiness and Scrabble. There we go. That's, and let's pray. Um, <laughs> but I used, I just had the foulest, mouth, and so then I got, I got saved, and all of a sudden, like, fiddlesticks, I'd, like, sort of glare at you, like, I know what you wanted to say, like, I sort of give you the look, you know, like, I was that guy, right, but what I, what I missed was that there's so much more behind obedience than the action, there's the heart behind it, and when we let corrupting talk come out of our mouths, and you're thinking, what's corrupting talk? It's whatever you just thought of that you were like, is this corrupting talk? It's that, right, it's sort of sneaky, but it's that. It's different for all of us, probably. Right? It's different for all of us. Maybe there are some objective standards. I don't know. But it's whatever you're thinking. Like, I don't know if this counts. It probably counts. But what happens is the Holy Spirit of God, who sealed us for the day of redemption, we sort of like throw it back in his face, and we let this corrupting talk come out of our mouth. And it says that it grieves the Holy Spirit. It says that we grieve the Spirit of God by our corrupting talk. I mean, look at this list. Like, it's amazing. Like, Bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander. I mean, slander is easy, right? Like, I have a Twitter. So does Ben Cook. I have a Twitter. Yeah? <laughs> I have a Twitter. If, you, if you're on the music team, you know what I'm talking about. I, I have a Twitter. I know how easy it is to get on there and go on blast about whatever, right? It's so easy. You have a Facebook. It's like, man, I hate my boss. My job is this. I, you know, like 10% of Americans don't have a job, but you really hate yours. I mean, it's so easy to slander. It's just so easy. But it's on the, you know, like, frenemies. Have you heard this word? Is this a word still? Frenemies? You guys seen Mean Girls? Is that where it's from? I don't know. I only watch it on TV, so I don't know about all that. But 
But it's like this idea that you can like love someone and then talk so much crap about them. Can I say crap? I don't think I can say that. Sorry. I meant smack about them behind their back. We're in a basement, so my filter is all jacked up. (laughs) In MIC, it's like, I better not say that. I sort of feel regal, but not here. Um, But it's sort of this, this idea that you can love someone and then totally be deceitful and you can sort of sort of judge them and slander them and talk bad about them. Or that you go to work and you collect a paycheck, but then you come home and all you do is complain about it. Right? There's this idea that, that we were sort of just throwing this back in God's face, like, thanks for the blessing, but no thanks, I could have done better. And, you know, like, this corrupting talk has to be corrected because Colossians 4, 5 and 6 says, walk in wisdom towards outsiders. Let your speech be gracious, seasoned with salt. Because people are watching. You and me, they're watching. They're watching what we say and how we say it. And it's not just, like, swear word this, cuss word that. It's like, what do you talk about? Who do you talk about? Who are you talking about them with? Because they're talking about you. They are. I've been that guy. Some of you are that guy. And, you know, an unbelieving world is watching you, and they're like, why should I love Jesus? What's the difference Because my life is awesome, and I can say whatever I want. So if they don't see not only that you're, you know, walking in holiness with your words, but that you have a joy, if they don't see that, then don't expect them to believe you when you sit down and do your little bridge illustration in their dorm room. Because who are you to talk to them? You're nothing. You're a joke. That's who you are. So don't do that, all right? What you say has to match what you say you are. Do you understand? What you say has to match what you say you are, okay? Because what you say says a lot more about you than what you say you are. I guarantee you. I guarantee you. Words matter. They genuinely matter. I have a friend right now who, the other night, we were hanging out, and he has decided recently, I guess, I was observing this, that he's not going to say that he needs things he doesn't actually need. And I appreciate this about him. So he said, I needed new jeans, so I went shop. And then he stopped and he said, I want new jeans. I thought that was so striking. I thought it was so interesting that he corrected himself. And it seems like such a throwaway, but like words really matter. They really do. And I thought that was so powerful. Because tonight, Trent was like, what do you want in your burrito bowl? And I was like, I need guacamole. <laughs> like, I need it. I didn't need it, but it was awesome. It was delicious. But I, just, I was just thinking, I was so struck. Like, I, I, even little things, the words we say really matter. And so for us young people especially, this is really not going well. It's just not, right? It's just not going well. It's not going well for you. It's not going well for me. It's just not. This is hard. This is really, really hard. And I think it's getting harder because it's getting so easy to slander somebody or to gossip or whatever. But in 2 Corinthians 12, 20, Paul, he's like Corinthian church who's, you know, jacked up. You know that that whole context. He says, I'm kind of scared that when I come to you, I'm not going to be happy with what you're doing. And you're really not going to like what I have to say. He says, I'm afraid perhaps there's quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. And, you know, so like, young crowd, we've been, you know, you guys can sort of like take your helmet off for a second. Um, But I really feel like for the older crowd in this room that, you know, maybe maybe you say the right right words, but I just just wonder about the gossip. You know, I've just seen it. I've just seen it. Um, And I I just worry that so there's a sense in which, in which the youth could never be good enough for you. They could never be good enough for you. Because they're not you, and you're the standard, right? And they, they could never be good enough. So you spend all your time sort of talking to your other friends in a similar age bracket about how the young, they just don't get it. They don't get it, do they? They don't get it. So just check yourselves, you know? I hope I'm saying that with respect and gentleness. Like, that's my goal. But just, just hear what I'm saying. We, you know, we need you to believe in us. We need you to believe in us. Because Paul's not saying in 1 Timothy that young people should be like the old people. He says the young people and the old people should be like Jesus. That's what he's saying. He's saying young folks, old folks, be like Jesus. That's what he's saying. That's what he's saying. All right, so in Romans chapter 12, we're moving on to conduct now. So that's one down. So if you, if you made it out of speech alive, like you can wipe the sweat off your brow, you're probably safe. In Romans 12, two of my favorite verses in the whole Bible, um, verses 1 and 2 of Romans chapter 12. It says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, 
which is your spiritual worship. Don't be conformed to this world, but rather be transformed by the renewal of your mind, which is part of this revival thing, that by testing you may discern what's God's will, what's good, acceptable, and perfect. You know? And if, if speech is not a problem for you, like praise God. Like, that is amazing. And I'm so excited about that. But maybe conduct is a problem. You know, like maybe this is where we're sort of slipping, right? So I love these two verses so much that the worship team wrote five songs about them on our retreat that we're going to be singing over the next however long, many months, right? And so I just, I love these verses. They inspire me, and I think they're so powerful. We're going to sing one on Easter, so look forward to that. It's just beautiful. It's really, really nice. And, and these verses really encourage us that, you know, like your whole self, like it's like the hokey pokey, like you have to put your whole self in, Right? <laughs> I mean, that's a terrible illustration. You know what I'm saying, right? Like, all in, right? It's like you're playing uh, a card game that would have some uh, betting uh, apparatus in place, and you might have to push all of your betting apparatus into the middle. And I, you know, I would never talk about gambling in a sermon, that's for sure. Um, <laughs> but if you were going to push all your chips in, that's what this would be like. It'd be like going all in. And so I'm just going to share a couple of examples of like, ways that conduct might be slipping for you and might be holding you back from the holiness God has for you. So one of the ways, and this is sort of maybe, maybe interesting to you, is are you hospitable? And I don't mean you have to be like, like Martha Stewart in the kitchen, like three-course dinner, and like, like table decor. Have you seen that weird show on the Food Network where the chick makes table decorations with every meal? Her food looks awesome, but I'm always like, you lost me at the gingerbread house. Um... So it doesn't have to be like that necessarily, but are you open to other people? Do you have room in your life to love people? Is there space in your life for someone other than you? For someone who might, might need you to pour into them or might need you to listen to them? Are you hospitable? Or is your conduct really, you know, I'm sort of doing my own thing. Right? And maybe we need to go back to community for that. So hospitality is an area. Are you, are you hospitable? How's that going? Because Paul says to Timothy, your conduct has to set an example for all the believers. So look around MIC on Sunday and say, am I showing all these people what hospitality might look like? Or maybe, you know, maybe it's sort of like, like drunkenness. Like, this is pretty common, I think, among a lot of, a lot of you. Like, and I don't, I, don't, I don't think alcohol is evil, any of that. Like, if you know me, I don't, I don't believe that. I don't believe that. I think that. I think that abuse does not negate proper use. Right? Because Jesus is the perfect consumer of alcohol, right? In moderation, and he made this wine. They're like, this wine is so good. And, and you know, and with friends, and there was no sense of, of, of drunkenness at all. There was, you know, in community, it was, it was safe. It was safe. But, but we sort of think we're better than Jesus. It's like, well, Jesus did it that way, but for me, I need to have 10 shots and then go home. Um, and I, I just feel like, like this is an area that a lot of people are like, well, it doesn't really matter, and... and well, it's, it's, sort of, it's sort of, you know, it's like a personal thing, and like nobody's going to know. But I, I just wonder, I just wonder when you're losing your mind at some bar, what's going to happen on the L ride home when you meet a non-believer and they say, what are you doing tomorrow? Oh, I'm going to church. They're like, no, you're not. You went to church right now. You worshipped at the altar of alcohol. You already worshipped. You're done. You already went to church. It's too late. So you can go tomorrow, but I don't know who you're going to worship there. There's only room for one God on the throne. Only room for one God on the throne. So maybe it's, maybe it's like drunkenness. It's sort of slipping, you know? Like, maybe it is. And you've got to let that go. And for goodness sakes, like, let's obey the law. Like, if you're not 21, come on. Like, you can't wait. <laughs> Grow up, for real. You know, maybe it's food, though. Maybe it's food. Maybe it's like gluttony, you know? We had a whole sermon on gluttony that was so powerful. Josh just, like, home run. He just, one after another, got after us. And... It's the same thing. Like, I've, I've been there. I've been there. I know what it's like. Food calls the shots. It's easy in Evanston for food to call the shots. Maybe, maybe that's where your conduct isn't showing that Christ is supreme. See, in our conduct, everything we do has to show that everything we do doesn't mean as much as Jesus, right? Everything we do has to show that Jesus means more. And Romans says we're a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable. And some people, some of y'all are like, well, I don't think God cares if I... He does. That's why he said it. Moving on. Romans 12, 9 through 21 talks about love. Talks about love. And love, I think, is maybe the most challenging thing on this list for probably all of us. Love is really hard. Because love has to be, Romans 12, 9 through 21 says, genuine. Love has to abhor what is evil. 
We have to love one another with a brotherly affection. We have to outdo one another in showing honor. It says, even if your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. Don't be overcome by evil. And I, in my experience, in my life, it's been easier for me to use people than to love people. I have a much easier time using people than I do loving people. And the reason that's true is because at points in my life, I'm God and I'm on the throne, and so it's everybody else's job to worship me. And so I use you to worship me so that I can be lifted high and elevated because I'm ultimate and supreme. And that's, I think, the reason that love is so hard is because so many times we're the ones on the throne. We're the ones on the throne. But it's way harder and yet way more satisfying to love people, to believe that God loves all these broken, jacked up, messed up people who do all sorts of stupid stuff, but that God loves them and that we have to love them and that God wants for us to love them. And so, you know, there are different ways this could play out. Maybe, maybe you're having a hard time loving people because your friend circle is a mile wide and an inch deep. You know, maybe it's like you've got so many friends and nobody knows you because why would you want to let somebody get to know you? So maybe you're that guy, like a different party every night, so many friends at the coffee shops, but nobody knows you. Or, or maybe you're somebody who's shutting out the world, you know? Maybe you're very insular. Something fantastic about Christian circles, I think, is the idea of homeschooling. I think it's a fantastic idea in so many ways. I think it can be a wonderful... I have so many friends who are like, like premier musicians and scholars who were homeschooled, and I think it's amazing. But I, I wonder if it's like you're shutting out the world because you don't want to deal with them. You know, it's like we have to check our hearts. You can do a good thing in a bad way, and that makes it a bad thing. You can do a good thing in a bad way, and that makes it a bad thing. But Christ loved us first. Like we sing in All I Have is Christ, like every night this week almost, that if he hadn't loved us first, we would still refuse him. We'd still refuse him. If God hadn't loved us first, we'd refuse him. And, you know, I think one more that's very real to a lot of you and to me is that sometimes we let our pain stop us from loving people. You know, I love that one of our ethos statements is invested sojourners, but I also hate that one of our ethos statements is invested sojourners. I remember Ryan Harding, who some of you know, who now is part of the church plant in Florida. We were having coffee one day, and I said, what's your plan? He said, I don't know, man. I don't know when I'm leaving. And a week later, he was gone. Like, that stunk, you know? Like, that was hard. It was like, we're together every day, and now he's gone. Or maybe, maybe it's worse. Like, a lot of us, I know, like, we lose people. Like, they're gone. Like, cancer takes them away. Or pain and suffering takes them away. And it can be really hard to want to keep loving people when they keep running away from you, by their own volition or not, or they're taken away from you. And it can be really hard to want to, to, want to love people. Because it just, it just hurts so bad to lose them, and I know that. It does. It does. But I just think about Jesus and the way that he knowing he was going to be betrayed, you know, was sitting at the table with Judas. Like, he knew it was going to hurt. He just couldn't help it. And you know what? It's no way to live. Not loving people because it's going to hurt, that's no way to live. And I know that's easy to say. I know it's easy to say and hard to do. But please, don't stop loving people because it hurts, because they need you, and you probably need them. Let's look at faith. In Hebrews 11.1, 1, we get the iconic definition of faith. I learned not to crinkle my bottle. Right? I learned that. Just, there you go. Um, <laughs> Hebrews 11.1 1 says that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And these are all going to start to have some overlap, you're going to notice, which I think is a good thing, because it, it shouldn't be too easy. I think that a lot of times, we don't set an example for the believers because we put our faith in the wrong things. Maybe your faith is in your retirement plan. You know, maybe your faith is in your 401k. Maybe, maybe your faith is, is in your career, that your career is going to save you. It's going to deliver you, not Jesus. But, you know, I have a friend who's in his 50s, and I watched him lose his job last year. And then I watched him step up and serve his church in a whole new way with his newfound free time. He said, you know what I need to do with this free time? I need to serve my church. You know what I never heard him do? Curse God. And I thought that was unbelievable because I have other friends and people I'm related to who lose their jobs, and it's God's fault. 
It's God's fault I lost my job. It's never my fault. It's God's fault. And I think that as we're shaken, we have to demonstrate that we're standing on something firmer than the waves, right? Because when, when Peter walked out on the water, he wasn't standing on the water. He was standing on his faith, right? And when he took his eyes off Jesus, what happened? He started sinking. He fell into the water, right? And then he said, what's going on? It's like, don't take your eyes off the prize, right? Focus on Jesus. You need to have a faith that demonstrates that you are living for more than what you have. You're living for something eternal. In 2 Timothy, right at the end of this, Paul says, you know, I I fought the good fight. I finished the race, and I, I kept my faith. I kept the faith. What a triumph cry. I kept the faith. Kept the faith. And so I think that us young guys, again, I'm just begging you older folks, like, show us what it looks like to have faith as you get, like, please, we need it. Our church is so young and so much potential. Like, you have to show us. We want to learn, you know. Titus 2 talks about, like, model the faith for the young women, ladies. And like, men, we, we need you. We just need you. All right. And lastly, certainly not least, is purity. So Paul says to Timothy, you need to set an example for the believers in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. And, you know, 1 Corinthians 6 is sort of this iconic passage. We heard a fantastic series of sermons on lust, so I don't need to get too much into some of the details because Jason really handled it very pastorally and I thought, I thought very helpfully. Um, but 1 Corinthians 6 says, Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, like we talked about this morning, within you, whom you have from God? You're not your own. You are bought at a price. So glorify God with your body. Like, this one is hard for me to talk about. It just is. My background is years of pornography addiction, many inappropriate relationships, doing things I shouldn't have been doing with girls I shouldn't have been dating. Like, I've been there. You know, I've done all the things that you could imagine and probably more. I just have a devastating testimony, and I hate that. I wish to God that I could have had, could have had a boring testimony. But I'm, I'm so rebellious. I've been so wicked. God is faithful, though. He's faithful. So know that as I'm speaking to you about this, I'm speaking from a place where I understand the pain. I know what it means to be surrounded by it. I know what it means to not be able to turn it off. I know. I know. I know. But this is sort of an insidious kind of destruction, you know? It really is. And it really is destruction. You know, pornography addiction is self-destruction. Inappropriate relationships are self-destruction. You're destroying yourself. You're taking it out on the person closest to you, yourself, and also on those around you. Right, guys? When you're looking at porn by yourself in your room, you're not honoring your wife-to-be or the girl on the screen who would never date you even if she knew who you were because she's probably so broken from years in that industry. She doesn't. She doesn't even know what love would feel like. She doesn't know she's beautiful. How could she know? You know, she's, by Jesus' standards, had, what, millions of hits, millions of partners? And there you are, you know, another person perpetuating the lie. It's the worst kind of misogyny, men. You have to think really little of women to do that. And I know that because I've been there. I know what that feels like. It feels so harmless. It feels so innocuous. But it's not. It'll destroy you. Believe me, destroyed me. I know, I know. And, you know, a lot of you guys, like, I see you at church, and I'm so encouraged, but I just have to wonder, like, how many of you guys are like, man, when I get home from RUF or crew or work or IV or church or dinner or lunch after church, I can't wait to get back in it, you know? Because, man, in my fantasy world, I'm in control. I'm in the driver's seat. I get what I want because I'm a man. You're not a man. You're a joke. You're a joke. You get help now. Don't let it go on. It ended before you walked in this room. Never again. It's over. I promise that's what has to happen. I promise. Because it'll destroy you. Man, we need you to step up. We need better men. I say this all the time, and it's true. We need better men. There are great men in this church. Find them. Learn from them. Get under them. 
right? You should have best friends who are twice your age or more. That should be your goal. Let them pour into you. Learn from them, right? I'm not talking about the guys who were like, oh, I just got married. I'm talking about guys who've been married longer than I've been alive. Meet with them. Meet with those guys. What's it like? How do you love your wife? How do you stay married? How do you do that? Because, man, if we don't do that, we're just getting in the cycle. We're just getting back, back to the grind. And we're going to destroy ourselves. And we're going to destroy our women that we're close to. We're going to destroy everything. Single guys, you're not called to manage sin. You're called to kill it. I don't care how many browsers you get. Don't manage it. Kill it. Okay? Couples, you're dating, you're engaged, you're not married yet. Just stop, right? Just stop. You're playing games with God. And God is the one person you should not play games with because you're going to lose. Don't play games with God. Get serious. Step away. And ladies, like, you know, traditionally it's been okay, but they're coming for you, right? Fifty shades of get away from me, like whatever. That's what, you know. But they're coming for you. They are. They're coming. And don't let them. Don't slip. Don't let them come for you. Because I would not wish on my worst enemy what I've been through in this. Right? Stay away from it, you know. Stay away from the little boys with the addictions. They can grow up, Right? You know, stay away from your old flame on Facebook, trading inappropriate text, whatever. There's like hundreds of ways. Snapchat, whatever. That's nasty, right? <laughs> but you're more than that. You are so much more than your sexual self. You are a child of God. You're a temple of the Holy Spirit. You're so much more than your sexual identity. I thought Brady's testimony was spectacular because he's more. What a guy. I don't know a single man who wages war on his sin the way Brady Richards does. And I hope all of you will learn from that because it's serious. And I can tell you, Matthew 5, 8, when it says, blessed are the pure in heart because they're going to see God, it's telling the truth. You get your heart worked out, you're not going to believe how your view of God changes. You're not going to believe how big it gets. Paul tells Timothy that he has to disregard his age to pursue holiness. Holiness is a work begun in us by God that we work out alongside of him that empowers us to change from the inside out. The problem with my sin jar in college was that I could never love money or comfort enough to pursue holiness. There's only one thing capable of bearing that kind of love to expel my old affections and fill it with a new one, and that is God. That's the only thing that can create in me the expulsive power of a new affection, something deeper. Because the amazing thing about holiness is that Jesus Christ has set for us the perfect example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. But that's not even the best thing about Jesus. The best thing about Jesus is that because of his holiness, we have the opportunity to trade in our sin, to trade in your heart and get a brand new one. It's not like a fixer-upper. It's like you're a whole new person, and it's over. The old you is dead, and it's gone. And because of Jesus, who came and died on the cross in our place for our sins, we can be holy. We can be holy as God is holy. And we can pray what Psalm 51 says, which is, Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew in me a right spirit. Because God is faithful. He hears our prayers. He hears our prayers. What I want to encourage you to do now, as we begin to sing few songs and finish up. Because I want you, like we keep saying like you should go pray with people, but I want you to like actually go pray with people. Because I just, I just think that you're probably not off the hook at this point. <laughs> you know, like I just, I just think there's probably something inside you that needs to get dealt with. And I don't want this revival to fall because we refuse to get our hearts in order. I don't want that. I don't want to be in the way of what God's doing. I want to get on board. So we're about to sing a few songs together that talk about this idea of holiness and how God has been faithful to us. And as we sing these songs, I just encourage you, we're going to have some elders in the hallway, some elders up front. I'm going to go to the back and just pray with somebody. Or you know what? Pray with somebody around you. But like, get serious about holiness. You have to believe that God has better for you. I know he does. I know he does. So I'm going to open us up in prayer, and then we're going to go to a time of prayer and worship. Father God, I pray against the enemy during this week of revival. God, I pray against all that would stand in our way as we pursue you in holiness. 
God, I ask that you would help us to not let anyone discount us because of our age, Father, but that we would always find more and more reasons to pursue holiness in all that we do. God, I pray that this would be a time of heart surgery where we offer things to God, where we believe that on the cross Christ has crucified our sin. And God, I just ask that you would do a mighty work tonight in this room, making people new, refreshing our hearts, Lord, drawing us into community with you. God, I just ask that you'd be near to us tonight as we go into this time of prayer.